This is A Confused Heap of Facts, the podcast where we have a discussion about history with the faculty of the Department of Military History and the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. special podcast episode here today. Uh, We're going to be speaking with three of the students in the AY22 class of the CGSC course, uh, all of whom are officers who are headed in various directions after spending their year here at Fort Leavenworth. And so we're going to talk to them about uh, their kind of experience with military history, both in their careers and in their, um, their studies here. Uh, also joining me is Dr. Bill Nance. Great to be here. All right, so let me start by introducing each of our three students. I'll start with Major Molly McIntyre, who is the winner of the Father Donald W. Smythe Award, which is given to the best history student in the class. Molly? Hi, I'm Molly McIntyre. Um, I originally have a background in sociology, so it's a little bit ironic that I'm not uh, originally into history, to say, if you will. Um, I would say the first time I've really studied it in depth is actually here at this course, and so I really appreciated a lot of the parallels that I was able to draw with a lot of the other course material. Okay, Um, and tell us a little bit about your uh, service background before your uh, CGSC experience. So I'm a military intelligence officer, and the job I was in before this was working with a defense coordinating element out of Denver, where we worked with FEMA for um, all of the Title X response to disasters. And before that, I spent a lot of time at the military intelligence schoolhouse and did my command time and worked as an instructor there. Okay, very good. Our second student with us is Major Michael Rasick. Mike, welcome. Hey, good morning. It's nice to meet you. Um, I'm uh, Major Michael Rasick. Uh, I went to Michigan State University, got my undergrad there. I did not study history, but I started my master's program at Western Kentucky University uh, as a history grad student there. I enjoyed it. I've always been a hobbyist history fan, so it's been a, it's been a pleasure being here at CGSC, particularly in the Art of War program, where we, we took a close examination of history throughout our study here. So I've enjoyed it. Yeah, and, and Mike is the uh, winner of the Arthur Darby History MMAS Award for a thesis entitled Mission Command in Ancient Rome, 218 BC to AD 100, of which I was uh, proud to have been a committee member, as well as the winner of the Douglas MacArthur Military Leadership Writing Award for an essay called We Don't Run with Scissors, which we'll talk about later as well. Great. And finally, our third student is Major McLeod Wood, uh, who goes by Woody from the Australian Army. Welcome. Yeah, g'day everyone. My name is McLeod. Uh, as Dr. Abel just said, everyone calls me Woody. I'm an armoured reconnaissance officer back in Australia. I did my initial bachelor's degree in history and geography, and I've been uh, an amateur hobbyist for, for history for, a, for quite a long time. I absolutely loved it. That's why I ended up joining the military and doing my initial degree in history. And this year, especially being on the Art of War Scholars Program, has been a fantastic deep dive for us to have a look into into military history over sort of like the last 150, 180 years. It's been a great, great experience. Yeah, and it's worth pointing out for the for listeners that we have a specialty program here at CGSC called the Art of War Scholars Program. And it's designed to kind of break out a group of students, usually between 10 and 15, to have a more intensive history study while they're here. 
Um, and both Mike and Woody were part of that program, as you heard in their introductions. And we could, we could talk through the differences between the traditional course and the Art of War Scholars course um, as we go. So, so what we're going to do is we're going to kind of have a conversation about history. And I'll generally throw open some topics, and, and um, Dr. Nance will as well. And we'll talk through kind of the importance of history and, and what role it plays in um, the, the military trade profession and study, if you will. Um, so, so I'll just ask you three generally. What role do you think history plays in the profession of the military officer? I'll start. This is Mike here. I think there's kind of two, there's two things you can really pull from studying military history. And one is uh, kind of the enduring themes that all military professionals should probably know that you can study from an extensive study of history going back thousands of years, uh, the enduring natures of warfare, principles of leadership, et cetera, that, that really don't change because they're kind of human in nature. Uh, and then the, the second part would really be kind of the fleeting things you can learn from modern or really uh, near history. Um, for instance, the close examination of like the Nagorno-Karabakh war or even Russia's invasion of, U of Ukraine uh, recently. You can, you can study technical and more fleeting things that are kind of applicable to us as professionals. Um, once you start looking at those close things, you can't really pull those lessons from anything farther back than maybe 20 years or so. But I think there's two real things, the enduring principles that you can understand and you need to understand as a military professional, and then the more modern understanding of things you can apply that are more technical or fleeting in nature. Okay. So I, I sort of see history for me as being uh, more focused on how I can use it in, in a command position and as, as a warfighter. So for me, it, understanding history gives me overarching context to what I'm doing and why. And it also, I find it provides me with, let's say, a, a Rolodex of situations that I've seen work or read that have worked and haven't worked and understand why they have and why they've failed. So when I'm in a situation in the field or, or overseas on deployment, you get, a, you get a quicker read of the situation and you're able to apply the correct uh, method to what you're doing. And I think it gives you a, a better way forward than if you didn't study military history. So I think it, from the practitioner's point of view, uh, it's really important to understand that, that historical context so you can make better decisions for your command going forward. And I, I definitely agree with Woody. I think one of the things I found most interesting this year is that even if the historical situation might be a little bit different, a lot of times the human response to it is the same. And so it's not history that it repeats itself, it's our reaction to it. You know, we had Korean advisory groups that we set up, we had Vietnam advisory groups set up, we did the same thing in Afghanistan, we're doing the same thing with SFABs. And so I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from our repeated attempts at doing things. I'll add one more thing, and, and I think this is huge for me. Um, you know, as practitioners, we study doctrine, right, because we're expected to apply doctrine in, in practice. I think the study of history, history is just stories. And when you, when you read stories or you hear stories, you relate to them closer. And when you read history, you start to understand and, and really embrace the ideas of, that doctrine's founded on. When you read these stories, you actually learn them. They're in the forefront of your brain. And it's like, it's what, what he's talking about when he's saying, He's seen the Rolodex of, of events that occur. He has these stories in his brain where leaders have applied principles or tactics or doctrine. Um, and he's, he's learned them and really embraced them and internalized them because he's, he's read the story behind it instead of just reading a list of, of facts or data or points or whatever that you find in doctrine that's often dry and hard to relate to. 
So can you guys uh, talk very briefly about the differences? Because I know for our two American officers, you had at least some form of history education as part of your commissioning source, either West Point, ROTC, OCS. Can you talk to us about the differences that you've uh, seen from your undergraduate or pre-commissioning history and the history you received at the Command and General Staff College? So I think for me, the difference between pre-commissioning history and now would be pre-commissioning was a lot more based on just memorizing the facts or regurgitation of the events as they occurred, um, whereas I think CGSC really worked to tie it into a lot of the other lessons. So especially second semester when it tied in with all of our leadership case studies or you could see some of the force management, um, the effect of some of the force management decisions that were made. And so I think it was definitely an attempt to be more comprehensive here. Yeah, and my, you know, my undergrad degree history was, the most obvious answer to that question would be that there was no, there was really limited military focus on undergrad history. It's, it's social history, it's cultural history, it's political history. We might touch on some military history, but it's not studying campaigns um, and what commander's decisions were made unless it had a very significant political ramification. Obviously, I think what we study here is much more applicable to military practitioners, um, and we look at it much more operationally, the way it needs to be looked at. Uh, and I did not, I mean, obviously, I, didn't, I did not get that at Michigan State University as an undergrad student there. So I would say that there's, there's two really stark differences, and the first is that when you're doing it either pre-commissioning or you're looking at military history as, as civilians, it's more because you're interested in a specific topic and you want to find out information. Whereas when we do it here at CGSC, or whether you're doing it as a, as a military professional, you're looking at history to understand why you're, why you're most likely going to make decisions in the future. And you're trying to build context. And I think that's two really different ways to view military histories. One is you're interested in it and you just want to learn. And the second is, how do I use lessons from the past to enable me to be better in the future. And I think that's a re two really different ways to go about studying military history. And what do you, you hit on, in a, on a topic, and I'm gonna hit you from both ends of that topic. So first off, you guys are professional officers. So how did that insight into, okay, I'm a professional officer looking at these historical events, how did that help you better understand these, uh, these historical case studies or uh, the history that you studied? Well, I, th I think it gives you impetus to study history, is that depending on who you've had in, like, senior officers in your, in your past and how, how much they have either pushed or encouraged you to study military history for its, for its benefits, I think directly relates to what, to what you're talking about with your question, is like, how professional are we if we're not gaining all of the context that history provides for us? Um, and I, I think that's, that's where it lies, is that we, we, we should be, regardless of what you're doing, you should try and have some understanding of military history to give you context for the future. And I think it gives you a greater appreciation for a lot of the nuances. So even as a lieutenant or as a civilian reading history, you're like, well, why didn't they just do it this way? Or it seems much easier to have gone left instead of right. And so the more time I've spent in the Army, the greater appreciation I have for the number of variables and fog of war, dare we say it, um, that's going to occur. We, we made it 10 minutes in, and there's a first possibility. <laughs> <laughs> I'm here for it. Yeah, I, I would agree with Molly. I mean, as a military practitioner, I, I read history now, and I'm able to empathize with the leaders and the decisions that they make. And I think it's, it allows you to, to really understand the complexity behind some of the things that authors have a hard time capturing, historians have a hard time capturing. Um, 
just because there's a lot of intangibles that you can't write on the word or you can't fit in the book or in the case study or whatever that are present that only people that have been there kind of experienced similar situations can understand um, or at least appreciate when they read it. Now I'm going to flip that question around. So you talked about how you gained a better insight into the history. Now I want to ask, how does history provide you a better context and insight into yourselves? Well, I mean, at the start of CGSC, they, we, we do some stuff with looking at your personality and understanding where you sit in terms of how you learn and how you, how you can execute certain things. And I think if you, if you haven't done like a personality test to begin with, you, you should look at one because they're absolutely fascinating and they're a good look into how you operate yourself. And what that does when, you, when you're considering how history relates to that is you can start to see that you, you can start to see your own ideas and decisions in historical events. And you can start to place yourself there and go, okay, well, if I was, if I was uh, for argument's sake, Patton and the Battle of Nancy, what, what would I have done? How would I have done that? And understanding yourself with all the variables that you can get out of, out of reading the military history and considering if I had that information, what would I do? and also understand how your personality affects your decisions, you can really start to, to sort of build yourself a pathway forward to figure out what would I actually do? How would I go about this? You know, where am I short in my, in my own personal self and what do I have to do to get better? You just made Colonel Lance very happy by referencing a 1944 battle. <laughs> <laughs> go ahead, Mike. Uh, yeah, I was going to say that I, when I study history, it just makes me feel bad about myself in the sense that I, the more I learn, the less I know. Um, and I'm very cognizant of the fact that there's just much more that I need to understand. I think being in the Art of War program really exposed me to how much I don't know. And, and I came into the program thinking I was decent at history. Um, but then I'm just, man, there's, there's a lot more that I need to learn. And then the great commanders and the great captains of history, you read the amount of history that they read, and you, real, and you just you try to compare yourself to them and, and you're just I feel like inadequate often and I need to spend more time burying my nose in books um, of course balancing it with uh, applying real world um, requirements as well but the more time I can spend burying my nose in books and history books I feel like the more prepared I will be. I, I will also interject um, given the impressive list of awards you've racked up you don't need to feel inadequate. <laughs> <laughs> well, Go ahead Molly. I would say my far less eloquent answer would be it makes me realize I should complain a lot less um, so we were studying the Korean War when it was also winter here, and my half-mile bike ride suddenly seemed a lot less arduous. <laughs> mm-hmm. No, it, it certainly makes sense. Um, and and I, I want to pull on, on some of these threads in, in perhaps maybe an antithetical way. Um, we we spent a lot of time studying, you referenced Patton at Nancy, right? That's that's a, a campaign that, that the allied countries represented in this room won fairly handily. What value do you think there is in studying failure or defeat? I think there's, of course, enormous benefit in studying defeat or failure. As much benefit in studying that as studying victory. And I think it depends on the honesty of the author, historian, country, or whatever is capturing that defeat. Um, if they m- marginalize what the true reasons are behind that defeat are, um, or if they're very candid and honest, you know, it depends on, on what sorts you're reading and the clarity that you can read it and the honesty behind it. But I think there's, there's huge gains to be made in reading defeats. Um, 
don't know if anybody else has an opinion on that. Yeah, the, I mean, the, the first example that comes to my mind is all the, the, the commissions that the Germans set up after World War One to study their defeat. Right. I mean, there were, I think there was 57 individual mm-hmm. um, or councils or commissions set up to figure out what went wrong that then led to them being able to do what they did at the start of World War Two. in comparison to one commission each for the French and the English to figure out why they won. Um, and I think that that's a great example of what genuinely studying defeats can do for you, is we should be more interested in why we lost. And so I really hope after the last 20 years we, we, we uncover and we really deep dive into what went wrong and why it went wrong so we can get better and we can do uh, do better things in the future. Yeah, and of course referencing Afghanistan there. Yeah. Mark? Um, I, I definitely agree with both of them. I think the first thing that came to mind for me was, well, I think it depends on how you're going to define defeat and how you're going to define victory. And I think establishing that really before you embark on either studying war or waging it is a strong direction. And we're at Klaus with reference number two now. <laughs> 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 unintentionally, unintentionally. Yeah, so uh, let, me, let me pull on some individual threads that we've laid down um, let me start with with you, Woody, because um, you're in you're in not a unique perspective here at the school, but one that's that's not shared by the majority of students, and that you're not an American officer. Yeah. However, being from Australia, you do share more with the American students than maybe some of the other international students here. Former British colony, uh, a history that is perhaps not as long as some of the countries represented here in the schoolhouse. Um, so, how has your experience been as an Australian, as an Australian officer? in an American military school? Yeah, that's a really interesting question. I think the, the sort of two things I would, I would bring is one, that what's been fascinating for me studying here is, is many times the, the perspective that is being taught is solely focused on an American perspective. And it's, it seems very difficult to break that learning model which is, it's just about America and what America has done. And so, being an international student, it's been fantastic to be able to bring in different perspectives about the same time periods and to try and, not necessarily challenge, but to make people aware of what else is going on at the same time. Um, And to explain that maybe sometimes the American perspective might not have been the only one that is worth understanding in that, in that specific instance. Uh, the second is, for an Australian, I mean, we're a, we're a huge country, but with a very small population. And so we essentially, you know, we're, we're a middle power that requires connections with other people. And you can see that, but I mean, before World War II, it was connection with the British. After World War II, it's connection with the Americans. And so uh, explaining why those relationships are important and how we build and develop them um, and explain why we're with the US on many of the engagements that they're on and and to explain what it is that we're doing and, and why it's important for our own national security um, it has been it's been a really good good thing to do over the last 12 months and to follow up on that um, you, your country is one that has essentially uh, three different histories if you will you have the Aboriginal indigenous tradition you have the colonial traditions, which, which are not just British. There were other colonizers of Australia as well. And then you have the Australian national history. So how does your country, and, and more, 
pointedly, how does your military kind of incorporate those different histories in its own use of history? Yeah, that is a that is a ripping question. It's a it's it's incredibly difficult to unpick in a in a couple of um, in a couple of minutes. But what I will say is that we recently published um, a new leadership doctrine uh, last year in twenty twenty one, and it is is exceptional at explaining the link between Aboriginal warrior style ac- actions as a as Aboriginal nations and its linkages between the last sixty thousand years of history moving into our colonial history with things like the Boer War and then moving into World War One and Two with our federal history or Australian federal history. And I think that document was one of the first in our military to try and connect all three elements rather than just going with our, uh, our federal history from... which really, in terms of the military, is, is Gallipoli campaign in World War I, mm. which, is where, which is where the nation was, was forged. Mm-hmm. As they, as we like to say, yeah, and Australia is interesting as a as a historical um, society in that it does have a, a if, if historiographically at least a depicted history going back, as you say, forty to sixty thousand years. So that's that is interesting that your your military is now using that kind of historical thread. Yeah, uh, Molly, you mentioned that you you have a background in sociology and you're kind of a latecomer to history. So how do you find those two disciplines kind of meshing? I don't know if I can dance around this without talking about Clausewitz. <laughs> That's all right. His, <laughs> could, his ghost haunts us all. I can definitely try. Um, I just think the the human element of it is the driving factor um, and has been historically. And so I think if you look at human behavior, it's a useful tool for not only predicting his, like what might happen, but also explaining a lot of historical events. Molly, you're hitting on an interesting point. It, 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 history is, by its very nature, multidisciplinary. So can you, can you pull on that thread just a little bit more, like the study of the person and then the study of history? How do, they, how do you connect those two? Yeah. Well, I think it kind of goes back to what Woody was talking about in terms of the impact of different personalities. So a lot of the times when I'm studying history, you can see that it's dominated by an individual decision maker. And a lot of times it's easy to judge what they have done, but if you look into what their personality traits are and what their background is, it's a lot easier to explain some of that. And so I just think if you look at like the psychological and the sociological, um, you get a triangle, and then <laughs> the schoolhouse is very happy with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think you bring up an interesting point, which is there, there's kind of a trap in that, right? That it's easy for people to read and study history and to kind of naysay into Monday Morning Quarterback. But I think as all of you have pointed out in your previous answers, there's also an element to the study of history where you realize that people made the decisions they made because of external factors, because mm-hmm. of context, right? right. And I, I think you're, you're, you're onto something very important here in that a study like sociology, which is, I think, fair to say history adjacent, can illuminate a lot of that. Um, and to, to unpack another layer of that, um, it, both sociology and psychology, and to, to an extent political science, can be divided generally into kind of quantitative and qualitative studies, right? Um, so, so how do you find those two kind of approaches working or not working with the study of history? I definitely think it kind of ties back to the question that you asked earlier, sir, in terms of differences between like undergraduate or pre-commissioning studies and postgraduate. Because I think pre, it's a lot about memorizing the numbers, the dates, the facts. And then once you move into a lot more of the qualitative information, um, that's when you start to be able to synthesize across multiple disciplines. Okay. Uh, Mike, you uh, 
worked on a thesis on Roman military command, yeah. uh, which, given what we've been talking about, is is pretty much about as far as you can get from modern study and modern warfare. <laughs> yeah. Uh, so first of all, why did you choose the topic of mission command in kind of the the, the great age of Roman warfare? Uh, it's kind of a blended two interests of mine. I mean, I've I've always had a affinity for Roman history since being a little boy, um, and then learning about um, the Prussian idea of mission command and just reading in our in our own doctrine where it suggested that mission command was developed uh, with the Prussians in order to compete with Napoleon, and it was this great new innovation in command and control um, methodology and it, it just kind of struck me because in my mind the Romans had been conducting this and, and this is this is something that historians get labeled as all the time we always like to point out the continuities in the past to the present and act like nothing's new uh, and I guess I'm one of those people that are kind of doing what historians do best um, but I, I just wanted it was interesting to me that I thought the Romans in a pre-radio world pre-modern world had to have been reliant on a form of mission command when they were doing things that we're expected to do, and that is project combat power to faraway places um, under some kind of unity of command and conduct actions rapidly. And, and they, they did that from you know modern-day Britain all the way to Syria and, and Egypt um, from, from a capital city, whether that was Rome or later in the Constantinople area. They had, they had no ability to control those formations. So to me, at, at the operational level, Mission Command had to have existed. And then when you start diving into the tactical level, it was very much so prevalent just based on the way that they configured their, their legions and they like to disperse their formations as much as possible, a big reliance on auxiliary forces. These types of things were the idea of one commander controlling 90,000 people at the Battle of Cannae. It's just, it's just absurd to me. Um, and even a handful of military tribunes doing something like that is just not possible, particularly when you talk about Roman manifold systems going up against phalanxes that are broken up, and who, who led the charges in between the gaps and the phalanxes. I thought it was interesting, and I, and I wanted to know, and I wanted to dive deep into um, what institutional documents that they have that allowed that. So their military treatises that were written at the time. Um, often you just see the Romans as this hyper-disciplinarian force, very hierarchical, and I just think that's, that's a narrative that's been painted over the centuries that that's just not necessarily true, and I wanted to uncover that a little bit. Okay, so walk us through briefly what, what you found, what your conclusions were. Um, I think that there was like there was a large degree of a, a no, there was, they caged a lot of the idea of mission command behind what they call, would call virtus, or the idea of military virtue, um, of aggressive uh, behavior on the battlefield. So that what, they, what we would call a discipline initiative today uh, was really just military virtus in their, in their, in their minds, and that was, uh, taking the initiative and seizing and being aggressive on the battlefield, um, but they had to control it as much as possible. Uh, so you'd have um, the opposite of virtus would be disciplina, and that was the idea of holding the line and staying with the formation and not breaking ranks and just aggressively exploiting. So we struggle with this today, um, with the idea that we want subordinate commanders to exploit fleeting opportunities as fast as possible, but there's concern that in a multi-domain operation, kind of um, new operational environment, if there's too much dispersion, too much decentralization, then uh, the, the larger synchronization of the operation will become uh, jeopardized and people can get themselves killed. The Romans had the exact same, uh, the exact same problem. So they found a way to balance it. They, talk, they caged it in cultural terms, we cage it in doctrinal terms, but either way, I think, I think we, we mirror each other just because the complexity of the battlefield hasn't changed and it's one of those things that I enjoy most about studying ancient warfare is you can see the continuities and the nature of war that, that continue on to today. Okay.
Uh, Woody, I, I mentioned um, that you had won uh, the third place in the leadership essay contest, but you also authored a piece in the U.S. Army magazine called Studying History Improves Soldiers' Performance, um, which I guess gives us the thesis of the piece. Uh, so could you walk us a little bit through your argument in that piece? Yeah, so there was, there was a couple of things, but one of the big ones that I tried to, tried to hit on was, was getting people to understand the difference between causation and correlation. And so understanding... Uh, how history relates to that. So for instance, um, there's a correlation between if you have surprise on someone, so you're conducting an ambush or a surprise attack, that that you can have positive effects. So there's a correlation between surprising someone and having a fleeting moment of shock that you can exploit. But it doesn't necessarily cause victory. And so that's why it's important to understand the difference between causation and correlation because just because your, your method for doing something uh, might achieve victory doesn't mean it always will. And that's a really important distinction to understand. Uh, when you are considering as a military professional what tactic or technique or method you might want to use against your adversary in the future. And so that was one of the big, big themes, is understanding the difference between causation and correlation uh, in, terms of, uh, in terms of military operations. What, one of the ones I did talk about in terms of causation was related to logistics. You know, if you, can, if you can effectively deny an enemy logistics, it will cause them to culminate. And so that's one of the examples between having a, a causation effect and a, co a correlating effect. Um, yeah, so that was that, that was the one of the primary ones that I spoke about. Yeah, and I had that section highlighted in the essay um, when when I read it, uh, and and I thought it was a very good point. I, I talk about this in my classes by asking the question: Do outcomes validate processes? Um, and it, it sounds like it, it's the same approach that, that you're taking. Um, so so I will ask you: How do you disaggregate correlation from causation in your own study of history? Well, so for me, causation has to always equal the outcome and when you're studying military history you can see quite often that that you can conduct the same method like a thousand times and the outcome will be different in nearly each each and every one so you have to really understand what were the what were the contributing factors and the context around each each element that you've studied and why did it have a specific outcome um, and I, I talked before about surprise attacks and shock and one of the things that people should take away from that in terms of uh, correlation is that shock is based on time. So you have high levels of shock to begin with under a surprise attack, and then as time continues, that level of shock decreases and your opponent has the chance to reorganise and to recollect and, to, um, and then to conduct actions against you. So you need to start to figure out how those things, how those things work or how you can continue to generate different types of shock on that force to keep them off balance. Yeah, and once again, we're back to Clausewitz, right? When you take an action, the enemy takes a reciprocal action, and they counter each other. And chance and probability as Correct. well. Correct. So one of the things that I want to kind of dig in for each of you is, is that you guys are all budding historians, and we're, we're, we're pleased with that. Now, for every historian kind of gravitates towards something that excites him. Like Dr. Abel and I went to grad school, graduate school together. He actually started out as a Napoleonic scholar and then uh, gradually drifted back in time and became uh, uh, enamored with this idea of Guibert and the uh, doctrinal changes that occurred before Napoleon. 
Myself, I'm a World War II scholar, and I've kind of drifted into uh, kind of the study of the uh, general elite officers that led Northwest Europe, uh, really fixated on the Ninth Army right now. So through your study, through uh, what you've studied in history so far, what's kind of the one era or the one person that you've kind of, that kind of spoken to you the most right now? And it can be for any variety of reasons. It can be personal connection. It can be you learned something or you just hated the person. <laughs> Which does happen in the study of history. Well, I think mine, mine was already kind of obvious. My, my favorite period, obviously, to study about is uh, Roman history, particularly late Roman, uh, late Republican Roman history. Just I feel like the, the, the blending of political chaos along with military chaos at the same time was just... It's, fascinating for me to read about and, and learn about um, more modern and this is just a new this is a new one since our being an art of war I, I've become fascinated with the Soviet early Soviet uh, thinkers like Tukhachevsky and the idea of, of deep battle and deep operations and kind of how they built on each other with A.S. Fetchin um, I found myself really just I, I loved how they were very uh, free to experiment and, and compete with each other as far as ideas and and how do we we have this problem set and how do we approach it and they would uh, war game these new ideas and there was a, a blossoming of this doctrinal intelligentsia that was occurring and I, and I found it very interesting and something that I feel like is almost missing today or, or might, might not be missing but it's just not as it's not being um, exacerbated as much as it, as it was then so I feel like that's probably my, my new kind of pet project that I'll probably be studying a little bit more now but and there is a there is a correlation there right I mean you mentioned the particularly the, the first century uh, BCE in Roman history it's the same it's a very Darwinian environment yeah. where these commanders are competing with each other for influence yes so one of them overthrows the Republic right right so uh, in that period in in the period of your thesis basically from the Second Punic War through the the high Empire um, what's your favorite war or commander or story my favorite story is um, it's Emilius Paulus going and fighting the Third Macedonian War. I found I found the idea of Eastern phalanxes versus Western legions coming to a head at the battles of um, Cinescephaly and and um, Pydna and Pydna to be just incredible to read and and Livy does an incredible account of detailing it um, and I just. I, I like the idea of two cultures clashing, but they both had mutual respect for one. Well, more respect from from Rome towards Greece, not as much respect from Greece towards Rome. But I just, I just the Third Macedonian War is probably my absolute favorite all time to read, and, and how Paulus kind of picks apart the phalanx, and then ultimately that that's the collapse of the Western phalanx style of warfare and, and the birth of the Roman. So yeah, and and let's dive into this a little bit because I think the details are worth exploring. So we we have a situation where. The, the Roman army does not tend to perform well against Greek armies, right? We have the famous example of the Pyrrhic Wars. Right. So Paulus is faced with being in a foreign country without much in the way of logistics and support, uh, probably has a smaller army, right? Yep. And he's faced with this, this Macedonian army that has been kind of the core of warfare for the last three centuries. So how does he approach the problem, and what do you learn from that approach? I think... Paulus approaches it in, in a normal, I, I, in a typical Roman fashion to me. I don't think he's anything exceptional. Um, I think his subordinate commanders, subordinate leaders down to the centurion level are where, where, they, where they won. Um, and he, he, he uses all the quintessential Roman ways to, to garner and motivate his soldiers by talking about divine support, etc. But it was the, 
the way that Livy writes it is that you had this giant phalanx that was marching and the terrain breaks it up and then you had the individual centurions. So ca captains, equivalent captains uh, and majors of, of the U.S. Army, the equivalent of that rank today, leading these, you know, 100-man formations in, in the gaps of these phalanxes and trying to turn them at the low tactical level. And, and this is happening across a, about a two-mile-wide battlefield. Um, and that, that's what, that story is really what got me into the idea of Roman mission command at the tactical level of having subordinate commanders actually exercise disciplined initiative and, and seizing these opportunities. And that's really why I love the Battle of Hidna specifically, because Livy counts that that way. Molly, okay. what about you? <laughs> um, so I'll admit that as a relative newcomer to history, I don't have any historical pet projects. I will say what I enjoyed studying here the most was probably the Korean War, just because to me it was a very obvious inflection point and a transition to the current conundrum we kind of have in terms of dealing with limited war, or you know, beginning elements of some of the hybrid warfare. And so the modern relevancy of that um, really stuck with me. Okay, Woody? So my, my focus um, or interest has always been on World War II, and that's primarily because my grandfather was in the Australian Army and Navy during World War II, and his stories sort of motivated me to, to keep learning about it, asking the questions. But this, this year I became really interested in understanding mobilisation and I spent uh, this year writing my thesis on mobilisation in the Australian Army and looking at what happens, like where do we get officers from when you expand rapidly beyond your current force structures. And so that, that's been my pet project for, for this year and I think it's going to continue because it's just something that I don't think a lot of people are considering um, back home or... or in a lot of countries actually is what happens if we have to go beyond what we've currently got in the piggy bank and and where do we get it from because I think people over the last 70 years with the limited war Molly was just talking about have considered that it's such a low risk of happening that all the all the resident knowledge that we had on how to mobilize has slowly and slowly dropped off and we now don't have the information that we need to or have thought through what it would mean to actually go in to that type of, of mobilisation scenario. So I think that's, and what's fascinating for me is that it combines a whole heap of really interesting history over the last hundred years, as well as looking forward into the future about what systems and processes we need in place to be able to do it. So that's the sort of my pet project. But you also asked about like what military leader that I've, I've, I've been fascinated with. And for, for many years now, the person I've been fascinated with is He's not from World War II and it's not from recent history. It's in Mike's realm and it's Scipio Africanus and his actions throughout the, the Iberian campaign in Spain through North Africa where he ends up defeating, uh, defeating Hannibal at the Battle of Zama and, and then his actions throughout Greece and, and um, Western Turkey. And it just his actions as an individual just blow me away with what he's able to do as, a, as an independent commander. And his reward, of course, is to essentially be exiled from Roman politics, yep. <laughs> which is one of the great ironies of the, of the, the Punic Wars. Yep. Well, I want to go back to something you were talking about. You were talking about the Korean War. And of course, the Korean War is kind of a neat one, right? Because there's, there's a war of movement. There's a, war, there's a static war. There's even a, there's a massive political element to this war. So what part of that, uh, you say you kind of hit the broad end, but what part of that kind of really uh, calls out to you, uh, particularly maybe as an MI officer, just as a person? 
man, I mean, I, I keep walking into the Klauswitz trap. Um, I that, think what <laughs> I, I I'm right there with you. So <laughs> keep going. I think what stuck to me there, and I think is the most uh, the best through line you can draw through to today is the disconnect in terms of the desired end state, um, whether or not it's the military end state and the uh, national end state, but that kind of mismatch and conflict that you had there um, in terms of trying to have the you know the Western, the American way of war and essentially having that be unthrottled uh, versus some of the political ramifications and restraints that were put on that. No, I like that one because that's uh, it's one of the points that I like to hit on a lot too is, is that the Korean War is not, it's interesting for a lot of, I say this as an armor officer, uh, <laughs> it's interesting for the maneuver aspects but it's much more interesting at the strategic and political level, at least in my opinion. Well, yeah, it's also a conflict where you know, World War II is almost too easy, right? Whereas with Korea, it's, you know, kind of muddled strategy. The operations and tactics don't always link. And, and it's also a war that we don't really know all that much about uh, compared to other conflicts. So, yeah, that's, a, that's an excellent case study. Uh, Woody, I wanted to ask you a question uh, kind of from your own <coughs> country's past. Uh, our, our listeners are probably familiar with the Australian military in the context of Gallipoli. Australian in or Anzac, and, and for better or for worse, in the American kind of historical memory, those two are combined, right? So how does your military tradition deal with Gallipoli? What does it do with it, and, and what lessons does it learn from it? That's, that's an excellent question. The, so for the listeners, so Gallipoli, the Gallipoli campaign um, w- was a defeat, and it was led by the, by the English it lasted for about nine months, and then it, it finished with a with a withdrawal off the Gallipoli Peninsula. Yeah, and the, the premise for our listeners is that um, essentially Winston Churchill decides that that the Ottoman Empire is the weak part of the of the the Triple Alliance. So there are there are forces, Entente forces, French, British, ANZAC, Australian, and New Zealand. They land on the Gallipoli Peninsula. It turns out the Turks are actually pretty strong. And eventually, as you say, nine months later, the Entente forces are withdrawn, pretty much humiliated. So, yeah. go ahead. Um, and the best thing about the campaign was the withdrawal, where the Australian component lost zero soldiers in the withdrawal off the beaches, which is which is a phenomenal achievement in terms of a, of a withdrawal. But for us, it was really our greatest or our first baptism of fire as a nation, where we took massive casualties for those nine months. And the Australians back home started having the casualty lists come through and started to understand the gravity of what was occurring in Europe and, and across the Mediterranean. And Australia has just become an independent country, correct? 1901 was when we federated uh, from, from the UK. Right, so, so Australia has been a country you know, independent of the United Kingdom for less than 20 years. So as you say, this is truly kind of a, an infant baptism yeah. of fire. And so what's really interesting is, is Australia at the time had about 5 million people. Um, we'd been a country for 13 years before the outbreak of World War I. Uh, but the, Australia maintained a, a voluntary army for the entirety of the war, which resulted in about 500,000 people being enlisted into the army. So that's 10% of your overall population and 20% of your male population at the time. So it was a huge, huge turnout for for the war. The, the history of Anzac doesn't really kick off until the early 20s when they start to actually set up Anzac ceremonies um, on Anzac Day, which is the 25th of April. And then it sort of starts to become 
th that becomes our Memorial Day. And it's also a celebration of, of what the nation was able to achieve in support of, of the United Kingdom and the war that was, was going on in Europe. And so that, that's where it starts. And the, and the real story behind Anzac is about mateship. And it's about how, it's not necessarily about what the country's doing, it's not necessarily about what the army's doing, it's about what the person beside you is doing and what you do for them and what they do for you. And so this concept of mateship is this really, really important intertwined thing. And Molly was talking before about like the psychology of warfare. And, and mateship's huge for us because you don't do things necessarily because your government tells you to. You do it because of the person you're fighting with beside you and the concept of you don't want to let them down or your other mates around you. And so mateship for us is hugely important. And Anzac Day is one of those times where you remember your mates. Um, and that's why it's so, so important for us. Yeah, and that ties us back to what Mike was talking about with this Roman idea of virtue, right? It's it's more the person next to you than it is any kind of ephemeral idea of, of state control, especially yeah. in a volunteer army. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that's a that's a good point. So let's let's transition a little bit to talking about how um, the curriculum here prepares you or, or sets you up for success in the future. Uh, Molly, you you're wearing your instructor patch. You have been an instructor. Um, so in the in the the uh, full CGSOC course. Uh, how, given your experience as an instructor, how did you find the application of history throughout the curriculum here? So I think, you know, I've already talked a little bit about in terms of the through lines that you could draw, um, and especially second semester when it was, it was tied to leadership, I found that to be really beneficial. Um, but I think like we've talked about this whole time, the application is what gives you the context for a lot of the decisions that were made and how things played out. And so I think, you know, when you think about it from an instructor's perspective, it's trying to get those concrete experiences or the, the application portion of it. And I think history is what provides it to make some of the lessons stick. Okay. And, and Mike and Woody, as we mentioned, you guys were in the specialty immersive history program called the Art of War Scholars program. Um, so, so you guys had a kind of a different history experience from Molly in the, in the uh, AOC course. So how did you guys find the application of history in your immersive history program? I mean, it was extremely insightful. And I think because we we're predominantly almost entirely history focused, we, we probably did not focus, you know, the Common Core or the AOC kind of curriculum that the, the normal students were taking were a lot more doctrinally focused. And we probably missed some of the finer points that they were learning and, and practicing in them and MDMP reps. Uh, we, we extracted those more just through a close study of, of conflicts and operational campaigns from the Russo-Japanese War until all the way up to the global war on terrorism. Um, so I think it's just a different, a different we, we extracted different information. I think we had a little more context probably to the principles that they were learning, kind of going back to what I was talking about when, when I first answered your question about what, what does history provide us, and that's um, stories behind why doctrinal principles exist, why doctrine exists the way it's written. Um, so I think we got some of that context and that's what that, our history curriculum kind of provided us. I mean we have notes that go back from every kind of preeminent reading from the Russo-Japanese War till now, um, capturing the main points of each war and each conflict and the leaders and the thoughts they had. And I have, you know, hundreds of pages of notes from all these authors and all these ideas and, and their seminal works and that I can reference now when I'm confronted with maybe a similar question or challenge that I, I can refer to. So I think it's, it was outstanding. What do you yeah, I think one of the, the best things about the, the Art of War Scholars course is having all of the lessons delivered 
basically by visiting lecturers and being specialists uh, in their field, whether they be historians or whether they be like uh, the actual generals who ran and ran the wars and made decisions for over the last 20 years in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and having their insights, their personal insights yeah. into that has been absolutely exceptional because you, you get the chance to actually talk to people about why decisions were made, what context did they have at the time, to understand why history was made the way that it was. And I think that's, that was a really um, key insight for us from the Art of War Scholars course. One of the things I would say that we didn't touch on a lot that I think the CGSC could benefit from is that we, we don't do a lot of things about uh, psychology and the impact that our actions have on the battlefield. And I think that that's really important to understand because we talk about uh, how you know, the outcomes of military history and why battles went the way that they did, but what we don't really get taught enough about is the, the physiological response that people have and how you, as a commander or a planner, can trigger those responses in an adversary and shield them in, in your own force. And I think that's something that we that we could really benefit from, that unless you're reading things about that, so whether it be a, 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 like a Jim Storr's book, The Human Face of War, and understanding what responses people have, I think you are at a disadvantage. And I think we need to start including that in the curriculum, whether it be back in Australia or here, so commanders and planners have a better understanding of that psychological component of war. I'm surprised we didn't read, to touch on what you're saying, SLA Marshall's kind of studies coming out of World War II. I know there's that, there's some controversy surrounding SLA Marshall, but I think some of the findings and the general themes are important, like why people fight. Um, it goes back to what you're talking about, mateship. Yeah. I mean, that's what was probably his biggest finding was that, and I'm surprised that wasn't included in that. And, and I think a great example right now that we're seeing play out, and you, t you talk about why people fight, it's called the will to fight, and we can see that there's been a, a really poor assessment or potentially poor assessment in the Ukraine about their, their will to fight and how much will they have to fight to protect their own nation. And the fact that that concept doesn't come up over this 12 months uh, or, is, or is a part of, of US doctrine, I think is something that we could, could really benefit people. And, and I absolutely see like why you have an interest in that when you start looking about the challenges with mobilization and harnessing that like human element and the the emotional component of it yeah and it turns out when you don't see your opponents as people you might underestimate them right <laughs> yeah. And, yeah. that's a good transition I think to to kind of the wrap-up question which is uh, you guys have been talking a whole lot about what is this, what amounts to personal formation right which is a lot of what you're doing here you are now going to go somewhere else uh, whether it's to Sam's to continue that process or eventually you're going to go back to your force um, for, for, for Molly and Mike it's to the US Army for what is the Australian Army so how are you going to use history in your commands to form the junior officers NCOs and, and soldiers under your commands versus forming yourself with history and to put kind of a spin on this for you guys it's like uh, Mike you're talking about ah, okay I need, to put, I need to put my nose into a book yeah you will meet commanders that will say, no, you need to be out yep. doing things. 100%. Uh, and Woody is cavalry officer too. You know, we like setting our history, but you know, you need to get out there on the line and on with, on with your vehicles and you need to be a tactical expert and you do. I'll say this as a professional officer myself, you need to be a tactical expert. So tell us what the past nine months of history gave you. How are you practically going to use that 
in your next job? So I'll start off with and kind of answering Dr. Abel's questions kind of directly. Um, I think as it's not cheesy, but I think the way that we do it in Art of War is there's there's an internal competition of like um, who's re like read certain books and who can contribute that to the discussion and who and who's writing papers and and kind of a it's a friendly but internal rival rivalry or competition that promotes encourages things like reading. I think reading history. I don't want soldiers sitting there reading history when it's the duty day and they should be out doing motor pool Monday maintenance on their trucks. I get that. That shouldn't be happening. Unfortunately, most of this history that needs to be read, it needs to be happening off time. So you need to find a way to incentivize soldiers to, instead of drinking or whatever, uh, right after work, they go read a chapter out of a book and then they can and then they, then they can go on the, their day drinking. So incentivize it by using some kind of program, like cheesy trophies that you give to whatever section or unit or that, 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 produced a, that published a paper that was collectively written or written by one or two individuals in that unit or, or something like that. And I think CJC does a great job with like the awards structure that they have here and it incentivizes soldiers or officers here to, to write and publish and, and encourages that kind of academic growth. And I think you can bring a portion of that, not all of it, but you can bring a portion of that back to your unit and apply it. I think it's about creating opportunities for that in terms of whether or not you have vignettes that may tie to some of the exercises or things that you're doing or maybe, you know, we talked a little bit earlier about logistics and the importance of that and, you know, the, the extent to which it can cause culmination. And so I think there's a level of responsibility that you have to bring that element into it rather than necessarily just relying on self-study. Because um, at least for me personally, I think when it's relevant, it sticks a lot better, you know, and I know that from being an instructor. And so I think... If you can pull out the pieces that are going to be relevant to what soldiers are doing at the time, that's where you're going to get the most bang for your buck. So going back to your previous answer, you talked about kind of the broad, how this broadens you personally, but then also how can I then take this broad intellectual approach and uh, narrow this down into a practical, direct application into uh, for my soldiers uh, to develop them at, at a certain point as well. Exactly. Yeah, so that, that would actually be my, my takeaway from this is that what we learn here is fantastic, but you've got to understand the relevance to the team that you're leading. And so trying to replicate what you have done as a person here is, for me, is not the way to go about trying to teach or trying to educate people for professional military education back when you get back to the force. You need to target it specifically to the people that you're leading. And whether that be at the soldier level, the junior officer or the senior officer, level. It, it's all different and it's based on context for what they need to learn. Um, and for me, you have to link it to what you're doing in your formation at the time. It's no, there's no point trying to teach people Thucydides if it's not relevant to what you're doing in that 12 months or 24 month command that you might be in. So you need to, to demonstrate some type of linkage and then get people interested in it. So one of the ways that I've seen this work before is we do tactical exercises with our troops at home. You, you set a tactical exercise for your junior officers, but what, you, what they don't realise is that they're actually carrying out a, for argument's sake, it might be a small battle like the Battle of Long Tan in Vietnam. Uh, and then once they've come up with the solution, you then tell them, guys, you just fought the Battle of Long Tan in Vietnam, and now we're gonna spend the next 10 minutes explaining what it was and you can see how it actually played out. And they go, oh, that was really interesting. And then they go away and read another 30 minutes on the Battle of Long Tan and why it was important. And, and you, sort of start to get, you sort of start to get little hooks in people. And you just need to realize that you know, maybe reading a, 
the whole of defeat into victory by Slim is not relevant, you know, for a private. <laughs> and it, it's this, re- this is the thing for me, is you just have to make it relevant to the person and to the level that you're pitching things at. And if you can do that as a commander, people will not only appreciate that they're not just being given work for the sake of work, you'll actually start to generate interest in for them and you'll move on. All right, uh, we've had a fascinating conversation today. You guys are all excellent uh, historians. It, it is proper for you to refer to yourselves that way <laughs> in, in your various capacities. You're all a credit to your branches, to your nation, uh, nations. Um, so uh, thank you for joining us today. Thank you very much. Thank you, I appreciate it. If you like this episode, please make sure to check out our other podcast, Broad Gauge Gossips, where we talk to members of the Department of Military History faculty so you can get to know them.